Section 28 of The Three Commanders. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Michelle Eaton. The Three Commanders by William Henry Giles Kingston. Chapter 21, Part 1. The Mosquito Fleet had been employed for many weeks in destroying almost immeasurable quantities of provisions and stores, effectually crippling the resources of the Tsar's armies. Private property had invariably been spared, so that the inhabitants of the country did not exhibit any ill-feeling towards the English. The few men who by chance fell into their hands were treated with considerable kindness. Jack's usual plan was after having ascertained the whereabouts of the magazines or stacks, which were nearly always placed on the seashore, to steam up to the spot just before daybreak, and immediately to send in one or two boats, the officers of which, landing with torches, quickly set the stores on fire, and scampered back before they could be pursued. Night after night, now in one place, now in another, stores and magazines were destroyed, and as there were upwards of a dozen vessels thus engaged, it may be conceived what mischief was committed. There is an old saying, however, that the pitcher which goes often to the well gets broken at last. Jack had heard from his faithful spy, Nioski, that some large stores existed on the shores of a lake about a mile from the coast, the river communicating with which was too shallow to allow of the boats proceeding up it. He had intended going himself, but an attack of illness made him feel that it would be imprudent to venture, as he might break down on the way. Dick Needham, hearing of what was required to be done, at once volunteered to lead an expedition, and Jack gladly accepted his offer. Tom and Archie, who had been burning to distinguish themselves in some exploit of the sort, begged that they might be allowed to go. There are no fellows on board who have better wind or can run faster than we can, observed Tom. Archie, with his long legs, gets over the ground at a great rate, and I can keep up with him by making my short ones move so much the faster. Jack, believing that there was no greater risk than usual, consented, greatly to the midshipman's delight. Billy Blue Blazes was ordered to go in the boat, to remain in charge of her while the rest of the party were on shore. The spy had informed Jack that there were no enemies in the neighbourhood. Tom and Archie were in high glee. Dick Needham had settled to take only one man with him, besides the midshipman, leaving the rest under the command of Billy Blue Blazes, to cover their retreat. The boat, with muffled oars, pulled in for the shore, when no one being seen, Dick and his companions landed. Remember, Billy, the commander's orders are that you are on no account to leave the boat, and should by chance the enemy come down upon you, you are to pull off to the ship and obtain further orders, said Tom. Not that there's much chance of that. Goodbye, my laddie, said Archie, as he and Tom leaped on shore. We'll be back in a little more than half an hour and you will know when to look out for us by seeing the jolly bonfire we are going to light. 
there was no moon but the stars shone brightly forth enabling them to steer their way by them the country being pretty level they hoped should they have to run for it to make rapid way it was also tolerably open with here and there copses composed of trees of moderate height by advancing along the side of which dick expected to be able to keep concealed till they had gained their destination we may reserve our strength for the run back after we have set the stores on fire he whispered to the two midshipmen we learned a lesson about that in our other expedition whenever they had to cross an open space they bent down like north american indians on a war trail keeping perfect silence so that they might have passed close to an enemy without being discovered thus on they went dick calculating that it would take them about half an hour to reach the magazines and they expected to return in half that time dick led tom and archie followed and tim nolan brought up the rear each one of them knew beforehand what they were to do and there seemed no risk of failure the magazines and stores were at length reached presenting much the same appearance as those which had before been destroyed not a sound which could indicate that any human beings were in the neighbourhood was heard not a dog barked in less than a minute they all had their torches lighted and effectually set fire to the buildings and stores which blazed up so rapidly that had any people been out of doors at the time the flames would have quickly betrayed them their task being accomplished they set off at a rapid speed towards the boat dick as before leading the midshipmen enjoyed the scamper and they had every reason to believe that they should get back in safety they had not got far however when they heard the voices of people from the neighbouring cottages who had been it was evident aroused by the glare and who would soon from the nature of the conflagration suspect that it had been the work of incendiaries unless however they could throw themselves on horseback there was no risk of their overtaking the nimble seamen still concealment was difficult for as the fire increased its glare fell upon them and betrayed their whereabouts they had passed over the widest extent of open ground and had made their way along under the shelter of a copse when they were again exposed to view as they were passing another copse a short distance on their right several shots whistled by them push on needham cried tom they're not very good marksmen a cry from tim nolan made tom turn his head when he saw a party of the enemy who had rushed out from the copse close upon him while tim by actively dodging tried to escape arrah never mind me he shouted though i'm after being made a prisoner you'll get off if you keep going archie who was some little way behind him endeavoured to escape when his foot struck against a stone and the cry he uttered made tom again look round and spring back to help him get on his feet in his hurry he also fell the cry he had uttered made dick also look round when believing that one or both of the midshipmen were wounded though he was so far ahead as to have been able to reach the boat without difficulty he immediately turned back to assist them as he did so he saw the russians hurrying up drawing his cutlass 
he threw himself between them and the midshipmen, hoping to drive back their foes and allow them to make their escape. Tom and Archie were quickly on their legs, but before they could do as Dick told them and run for their lives, they were surrounded by a party of helmeted Russians. Dick, however, laid about him so lustily with his cutlass that had the midshipmen been willing to leave him, they, at all events, might have made their escape. They were endeavouring to draw their swords when the Russians, throwing themselves on them from behind, seized their arms, and Dick received a wound from a bayonet in his sword arm, which made him very much against his will drop his weapon. In an instant, more Russians coming on, they were completely overpowered and dragged away. Not, however, till Dick, in a stentorian voice, had let Billy Blueblazes know what had happened and directed him to pull back to the ship with the news. Billy had caught sight of the party in the distance, just as the enemy rushed out on them, and had seen Dick turn back to help Tom and Archie. Had he not been ordered to remain in the boat, he would have landed and tried to assist them. Fortunately, perhaps, he did not make the attempt, as his men could not have fired at the Russians for fear of hitting their friends, and he and his party would, in all probability, have been captured with the loss of their boat. As soon as he heard Dick's voice, he shoved off and pulled away for the ship, in the hopes of getting assistance. Jack, however, saw that it would be useless to send a party on shore, as the Russians would to a certainty carry off their prisoners to a distance. As Billy stated that he saw a large number of men, the fresh party might very likely be overwhelmed. Jack naturally felt very much grieved at the loss of the midshipmen and gunner, although they were not likely to be otherwise than kindly treated. Still the war might last for some time, and they would lose the advantage of the experience they were gaining while he could ill afford to dispense with Needham's services, or lose Tim Nolan, a good seaman on whom he could always depend. The midshipmen are pretty sure to fall on their feet wherever they are carried, observed Mr Mildmay, so we need not, I hope, be over-anxious about them. Next morning Jack sent a flag of truce on shore to inquire what had become of his captured officers and man and to offer to send them any necessaries they might require. Before the boat returned, another steamer hove in sight, which proved to be the Gior. Murray had orders to summon the Tornado, with any other vessels he might fall in with, in order that their boats might form an expedition up the river, across which ran the great high road leading to the Crimea. Information had been received that a large amount of stores and provisions were on their way to the garrison of Sebastopol. If we can cut them off, we shall commit incalculable damage, perhaps starve the garrison into surrender, Murray observed. He was, of course, sorry to hear of Archie's capture, but the two commanders agreed that they need not make themselves very unhappy about the future. Green, who had gone on shore with the flag of truce, returned, saying that he had been unable to fall in with anyone who could communicate information about the prisoners, and they had therefore to be left for the present to their fate. A few hours afterwards the flash appeared, and the three commanders proceeded to the rendezvous, a short distance out of sight of land. 
it had been arranged that they were to stand in at nightfall and immediately to send their boats up the river, so as if possible to take the enemy by surprise. In the meantime, several of the fleet were sent to different parts of the coast to burn all the government stores that they could discover, and thus to assist in misleading the enemy. The squadron was delayed longer than had been expected, but at length information was received that a caravan was on its way and might be expected near the mouth of the river the next night. Jack settled to take command of one of his boats, while Green took command of the other. Adair went in one of his, and Desmond, greatly to his delight, had charge of the second. Murray also dispatched two of his, and the other ship sent the same number. The squadron came off the mouth of the river about an hour and a half after dark, when the flotilla of boats, without a moment's delay, proceeded up the stream with muffled oars. A mist lay on the water, though the stars could be distinguished overhead, which, as they kept directly in the centre, would, they hoped, conceal them from any persons on the banks. The crews were ordered to keep perfect silence. The larger boats were armed with guns in their bows, capable of throwing shot and shell, so that they were well able to compete with any force which might appear, even though accompanied by field pieces. It was known, however, that the enemy possessed, but few in that part of the country. The boats at length got up within about a quarter of a mile of the ferry, at which the caravan was expected to pass. Either bank of the river was lined with a broad belt of tall rushes, in which they were directed to conceal themselves, while Adair, in his gig, pulled up to try and ascertain whether the wagons had reached the bank. The Commodore had settled to wait till some had crossed, so as to attack as many as possible close to the edge of the water, making sure of destroying them as well as those actually crossing. The crews of the boats were waiting in anxious expectation for the order to dash out of their places of concealment. Day at last dawned. The startled wildfowl flew up from among the rushes, screaming loudly at the intruders, while, as the light increased, the dark water assumed a brighter hue, though a mist still lay on the surface, which greatly assisted in the concealment of the boats. At length Adair's gig was seen dimly through the mist, pulling at a rapid rate down the stream. In an instant the crews of the boats, jumping into their seats, got out their oars ready to give way as soon as the order should be received. Adair soon reached the Commodore's boat. He said that the provision wagons had begun to cross and that several were already on the opposite or western bank. The boats had been ordered to pull up in two divisions, the larger to attack the east bank, the other the west. Jack's and Adair's boats belonged to the latter. The welcome order to advance was heard, and the boats, emerging from their cover, pulled away in two lines, as fast as the men could bend to their oars, moving along like two huge serpents darting on their prey. Not a word was uttered, so that the boats, still shrouded by the mist, were close up to the ferry before they were discovered. The Russians were taken completely by surprise. The wagons on board the ferry boat were at once captured. 
a small body of troops sent to convoy them, fired a volley from the east bank, on which side the greater number of wagons were still advancing to cross, and then, seeing the strong forces approaching to the attack, retreated, while shouts and shrieks and cries resounded on all sides, the drivers endeavouring to turn round their animals and escape, while the seamen who sprang on shore set to work to cut the traces, to prevent them from doing so. Jack and Adair, with their men, had landed on the west bank, where the drivers of the wagons were doing their utmost to urge on their beasts. The sailors were getting quickly up to the nearest of them to put a stop to their progress, while the others ahead still endeavoured to escape, some in their hurry getting off the road upset. The wildest uproar and confusion ensued, the drivers shrieking to their beasts, the seamen shouting as they rushed forward. One of the leading wagons, as it dashed forward, overtook a carriage which had apparently been on its way down to the ferry. When the postillions, alarmed by the sounds which reached their ears, turned it round to escape in the opposite direction, a wagon, coming against its hinder wheel, had upset it on one side of the road. Just at that juncture, Adair and Desmond, who with their men had gone ahead, arriving at the spot, heard cries for help from female voices proceeding from the carriage. At the same moment they saw a gentlemanly-looking personage in a travelling dress emerging from one of the windows, and several others who had evidently been on the outside endeavouring to pick themselves up in a field into which they had been thrown. "'If that isn't Tom Rogers, I'm not an Irishman,' exclaimed Desmond. "'And there's Archie Gordon, too. Hurrah! "'Provided they haven't broken their legs or arms, "'they'll be all to rights after all. "'And that's no other than our friend, Colonel Paskiewicz.' Hurrying forward to assist Colonel Paskiewicz in extricating himself from the overturned carriage, they perceived that there were several ladies in the inside, who, although they every now and then uttered screams, were wisely remaining quiet, holding each other in their arms. Thank you, gentlemen, said the colonel. I must now ask you to help out my wife and daughters, who are naturally fearfully alarmed at what has occurred. We regret to have been the unintentional cause of their disaster, said Adair politely, while he and Gerald, climbing up on the side of the carriage, caught hold of one of the young ladies, who proved to be Mademoiselle Fiodorona. They were quickly joined by Tom and Archie, the former of whom took the fair Fiodorona in charge. Another person now made his way up from the field, into which he had been thrown. Why, Higson, my fine fellow, I am very glad to see you, exclaimed Adair. Where do you come from? I'll tell you all about it by and by, answered Higson, when we have got out the ladies. And he, lending a hand, Mademoiselle Ivanona, was next hauled up. Higson, taking her in his arms with the most affectionate solicitude and carrying her to a place of safety by the side of the road, while the rest dragged out her mamma, who, if not much hurt, was greatly alarmed. The coachman, who had also been thrown off his box, had in the meantime been assisting the postillions 
in cutting the traces, which having been done, the latter galloped off, under the impression probably that should they remain they would be made prisoners with their master. While this scene was taking place, Jack, with Joss Green and their men, had advanced toward the post-house, in front of which a small body of troops were drawn up, waiting an opportunity, apparently, to attack the English, as soon as they were still more scattered in their pursuit of the wagons, as it was evident they would quickly be. No sooner, however, did they perceive Jack's compact party of seamen in well-ordered array advancing towards them, than without even firing their muskets, they went to the right about and scampered off as fast as their legs could carry them. Just as they disappeared, a window in the post-house was thrown open, and out of it jumped Dick Needham, followed by Tim Nolan. Erin go bra, shouted the latter, it's ourselves, have gained our liberty. There's no time to tell you how it all happened, sir, said Dick, as Jack welcomed him. We were not badly treated by the Russians, but I am main glad to get out of their hands. I only wish there was a good chance of your brother and Mr Gordon getting set at liberty, but I am sorry to say they gave their parole, as they called it, to the Colonel, and when I told them that Tim and I had got a plan for getting off from the Russians and making our way to the coast, they told me that they could not join in it, as they were bound to stay till the war was over. Commander Rogers, however, had no time to listen further to what his gunner had to say, as he had to set to work at once to destroy the captured wagons. Having examined the post-house to ascertain that no enemies lurked within, he set fire to the leading wagons, and upon his way to the river to destroy the remainder, he came upon the overturned carriage, near which he found the colonel's family, with Higson and the midshipmen. The colonel expressed his pleasure at seeing him, and informed him that he was on his way to visit an estate, remote from the seat of war, in the eastern parts of the country, when he heard that some English officers and seamen, who had been prisoners, were in the neighbourhood, and that on visiting them he discovered that they belonged to the tornado. Upon making application to the governor of the district, he had succeeded in obtaining the release of the officers on their parole, though the men had to continue in charge of their guard. I am afraid, therefore, he added, that I cannot restore the former to you, unless you choose to consider me your prisoner. As you are a non-combatant at present, we certainly cannot capture you or your family, answered Jack, but with regard to my lieutenant and the two midshipmen, I am somewhat in doubt whether or not to do so. Greatly to Jack's surprise, Higson and Tom both expressed their decided opinion that as men of honour they ought to remain, though Archie seemed much less confident on the subject. We'll get your carriage on its wheels and then think about this matter, Colonel, said Jack, and if you will send your coachman to bring back the runaway postillions and their steeds, we will escort you across the river and see you on your journey to the eastward. As there were no enemies to contend with, the plan proposed by Jack was quickly carried into execution. The horses were brought back. The carriage, which was an old-fashioned family coach, had not received much damage. 
Jack consulted Adair as to how he should act towards the lieutenant and midshipmen. As they are in our power, we are bound to lay hands on them, whether they like it or not, answered Adair. If they go unwillingly, their parole is not broken. Whereupon Jack told Higson and the midshipmen that they must consider themselves under arrest and prepare to return in the boats to their ship. On hearing this, both the young ladies began to evince signs of agitation. Surely you are not going to take away Lieutenant Higson, exclaimed Ivanona. You cannot be so cruel as to carry off our dear Tom, cried Fiodorona. We had all sorts of pleasant schemes to make them contented during their exile, added Ivanona. I must be very hard-hearted and perform my duty, answered Jack. It was pretty clear that both Higson and Tom had no objection to remaining, but he was firm, though Archie seemed happy enough to get back. I'll tell you how it is, he whispered to Desmond. The first lieutenant and Tom are spoony on the young ladies. It is my belief that they expect to marry them some day. The colonel and his wife seem to have taken a great fancy to Higson. Oh, oh, said Jack. That makes it doubly important to keep them out of harm's way. In vain, the young ladies again and again pleaded, supported by their mamma and the colonel. Jack was inexorable. The remains of the wagons burnt on the banks of the river, having been cleared away. The colonel's carriage was escorted to the ferry boat, which conveyed it across to the opposite bank. Here, however, so many more wagons had been destroyed that some time was spent before it could proceed. Higson and the midshipmen now got leave to pay their farewells to the ladies. Ivanona could with difficulty restrain her feelings as the gallant lieutenant approached to shake hands, and Archie declared to Desmond that he heard him vowing unalterable affection, and making a promise that as soon as the war was over, he would come back and marry her with her parents' permission. The more impulsive Fiodorona threw her arms around Tom's neck and kissed him on both cheeks. He, in return, made the same promise as his lieutenant, with a proviso that he should obtain his papa's permission. All right, said Jack, when he heard of it, he's very safe. A considerable amount of damage had been inflicted, but the wagons proved only to be a leading detachment, a second and larger portion being some miles in the rear, and they, getting timely notice of the raid of the English, retreated to a safe distance. The Commodore, receiving information that troops with some field pieces were advancing, prudently conducted his boats down the river to avoid an engagement which could have produced no satisfactory results. Tom Rogers was at first very much downcast, but in the company of his old friends quickly regained his spirits, and he and Archie were loud in their praises of the hospitality with which they had been treated. Higson did not say much, but Jack could not help suspecting that he no longer relished being engaged in hostile operations against the countrymen of his charmer. He confessed as much. Still, you've known me long enough to be sure that though it may be against the grain, I'll do my duty whatever happens. Higson kept to his word, and no man was more active in the operations, which soon afterwards took place off Giesk 
Vodnia and Glofera. Strange as it may seem, considering that the places had before been attacked, the Russians had accumulated along the shore in their neighbourhood enormous rows of stacks, several miles in extent. They had, however, 4,000 troops to protect their property, while they were aware of the small force possessed by the English, who could not muster more than 200 men for boat service. The larger vessels, from want of water, had to remain in the offing, while the gunboats towed the other boats as near as possible to the shore, and then covered them by their heavy fire. They pulled in when their crews, springing to land, drove back the enemy and set fire to the stacks in succession, proving that it is much easier to commit harm than to prevent it. These attacks being made simultaneously at different points so distracted the enemy that they knew not in which direction to proceed. Scarcely had the flames burst out at one point than they saw fires blazing up at several others. The stores at Vodnia and Glafira having been destroyed, the squadron proceeded off Giesk. Here, for full four miles, stacks of corn and hay were arranged close to the water's edge, while under the protection of the forts around the town were vast piles of timber, cured fish, naval stores and a number of boats. Here again the shallowness of the water prevented the larger vessels from approaching. Even the gunboats could not get in nearer than long range. Such boats as could carry heavy guns, being distributed in four divisions, were sent in to cover the landing parties in the smaller boats, about a mile from each other. As they approached, they saw that the Russians had thrown up light breastworks along their front, from which they kept up an unremitting fire on their invaders. Fortunately, the wind blew on shore and carried the smoke from their own and the British guns in their faces. The landing parties, rapidly advancing, sprang on shore and dashing with bayonet and cutlass over the Russian breastworks, speedily put the enemy to flight. The stacks along the whole of the line, being simultaneously lighted, blew so dense a cloud of smoke into the eyes of the Russians, that though they rallied and opened a hot fire, they were unable to take aim or ascertain what their persevering foes were about. In six hours every stack, as well as the timber and naval stores and boats, were destroyed, with no other loss to the British than five men wounded. These proceedings, unheroic as they might appear, tended greatly to bring the war to a conclusion. The flash, with several other vessels, had in the meantime been dispatched to different parts of the coast to carry on a similar work. Tom had a short time before being sent to serve on board her. After he had been brought back to the tornado, he appeared a changed being. Unless when compelled, he spoke to no one except Higson, and they too seemed to have much interesting conversation together. Jack observed it and came to the very natural conclusion that Tom was over head and ears in love with the Russian colonel's daughter. He consulted Murray on the subject. Send him on board the flash, was Murray's answer. Adair and young Desmond will soon knock all that sort of nonsense out of him. It never does for a midshipman to be falling in love. 
it is bad enough for a lieutenant, except under some circumstances, added Murray, recollecting how both he and Jack had acted. At all events, my father would not approve of his marrying a Russian, even putting her religion out of the question, said Jack. The flash being in company at the time, Jack pulled on board her and soon arranged the matter with Adair, who very readily consented to take charge of Tom. That young gentleman was somewhat astonished at finding that he was thus to be disposed of, but he could not venture to expostulate with his commander, even though that commander was his brother. With a deep sigh he wished Higson goodbye. Perhaps if you are sending a letter on shore, you will put in a word from me to Theodorona, and assure her that I shall ever be faithful, said Tom. As to that, Tom, I don't think there is much chance that I shall have an opportunity of writing to anyone living in the enemy's country, answered Higson, who could not help perceiving the absurdity of the thing. You, with the interests you possess, have certain prospects of promotion, and you will be giving them all up, and be separated from your family if you were to marry a Russian and settle down in this part of the world. My case is very different. I have no interest, I'm getting on in life, and shall probably not get my next step till I am old enough to retire from the service. The young lady has, I'll allow, a fancy for you, but she'll soon get over it. And if I ever come out and marry her sister, I'll persuade her that it is the best thing she can do. Tom did not quite fancy this advice, but like many another midshipman, he had to grin and bear it, and was, two minutes afterwards, proceeding with his chest on board the flash. Gerald welcomed him warmly, and having received the cue from Adair, said not a word for some time about the fair Theodorona. The flash being actively engaged, Tom had plenty of work and very little time to think about his lady love. His conscience was not at all troubled when he was sent in to burn stacks of corn and hay and other government property. Indeed, had he been so, as he had heard Jack observe that by doing so the war would be the sooner brought to a conclusion, he would have considered that he was doing what would be well-pleasing to the Colonel and his family. End of section 28